Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Retailistic. My name is Andrew Smith of thinkuncommon.com. I'm excited to be chatting to you today about all things merchandising. I am solo this week. Deborah's uh, coming down from her 1010 shopping festival and is flying high with all of the amazing and incredible learnings. And I, I utterly recommend that you hang out for next week's episode. Uh, where we will be talking about everything we learned from this huge, one of the biggest live streaming events, surely, that we've seen in the United States. So very exciting for that next week. But this week, you're stuck with just little of me, but don't panic. I have a guest that is so incredible that you're going to need to strap yourselves in, pour a cup of tea just to hear her bio alone, because this this guest is a superstar. Lisa Amlani is a regular contributor to Retail Wire, Bloomberg, Forbes, Footwear News, The Wall Street Journal, The Sourcing Journal. Tell me about it. It's got, she's got all the brand names there. She's had a career in retail spanning 20 years. She's worked with brands that you all know, Holt Renfrew, Ralph Lauren, Club Monaco, Nike, Walmart. Uh, and she's currently the principal and founder at Retail Strategy Group and the author of the Merchant Life newsletter. Uh, the Retail Strategy Group is a consulting practice which helps companies in the retail space dramatically improve profitability, increase uh, organizational effectiveness, and has just been named one of Rethink Retail's top influencers of 2022. So we're in good company. Uh, So uh, we are going to talk today through their recent publication of the six rules of subtraction. And I'm excited to have Lisa with us. What in the world does that even mean? So what it actually stands for is, like you said, product creation by subtraction. And it's under the premise that less is more. So the approach to not only um, inventory management, but product creation, also assortment planning, is under the premise that and approach that less is more. I think that is incredibly smart. And uh, especially for retail right now, um, I love there is so much about it that I really enjoyed. I would love if you're up for it to go on a journey with me through the because you can't you broke it down into like these six principles, which I think are super smart. Can we kind of just dive into each of them a little bit, if that's all right? You can uh, help yes, little, little old me, the humble, the humble retailer, work through what your incredibly smart principles are. I would love to. Um, so number one, more supply does not equal more demand. Tell me more. So one thing that um, we can say to be true, especially as we read the news, is that a lot of retailers and brands are sitting on excess inventory. Every year, retailers buy into more and more products driven by things like gross productions, uh, leadership directives, and of course, minimum order quantities. So what this does is it's setting up an unrealistic expectation of consumer demand. We're not buying into what the consumer actually wants, and there is a saturation point um, where consumers will stop buying altogether. And that's where we are saying that there is a merchandising sweet spot where inventory and SKU count will meet the motivation to buy, which will drive uh, the consumer interest in buying product. And that really drives that concept of more supply does not necessarily equal more demand. And that's where we talk about less is more and setting up those more more realistic um, expectations of what the consumer will actually buy into. Um, I adore that. I think that's really smart. And like the the um, breaking it down as well. What's the driver of it historically? Like it feels a little bit like. Um, in fact, I'm going to share a story. I remember when I f- I did a team building exercise once. We were on a huge conference. There was hundreds hundreds of people there, 
And um, we did this activity where we all had to like basically become either suppliers of, you know, farmers right through to the end products, selling merchants. And, you know, it was essentially a full supply chain and we had to kind of negotiate with each other and work through. And then, you know, at the end, they would rate us on how well we actually did meet customer demand. And we did just a rubbish job. We were terrible. And the main reason we were terrible is we were all insanely greedy along the way and tried to kind of negotiate what was best for us. And and people in the supply chain who aren't directly facing the customer kind of forgot about the ultimate consumer. Is it kind of like that? It's 100% like that. Um, And if you take in all those external factors like minimum order quantities being something that many brands and retailers are facing today... Uh, a lot hasn't changed in that world where the more you buy, the less you're going to spend uh, per item. Uh, this is still driving a lot of negotiations, as you probably know from brands and retailers that you work with, that a lot of brands and retailers cannot meet those minimum order quantities um, or they have no choice. And once you start thinking about what the consumer actually wants, you'll realize that you're actually buying into too much product. I'll also tell a story. Um, in my 22 years of merchandising, planning, buying, um, minimum order quantities did drive a lot of my projections because I knew I didn't have a choice uh, but to buy into that product, especially if I was when I was working with a, a global brand where I was a regional merchant, those minimum order quantities had already been bought into and it was expected that I would buy an exorbitant amount of product for the region of Northern Europe when I knew that, you know, short sleeves are not going to sell in Scandinavia in December. (laughs) So the fact is, even though as a merchant, I knew my consumer, I was still um, expected to buy into those high quantities, no matter what. And I was expected to make sure that product sold. Um, And that's where the disconnect happens is when you know, we know what the consumer wants, but yet we're driven, uh, you know, by production and sourcing and how they've negotiated with their factory partners on how much we can actually buy into. And this is where assortment planning um, comes into play. And we're, we're planning for markdown activity, right? So not only and we know that there's going to be excess, right? Oh, of course. And like, it, it is one of those times, too, where you just sit there and go, it is... Um, if you were to explain this to, or if we were sitting in our, you know, year 11 business management class and someone said, this is how minimum minimum order qual- uh, quantity works. And this is why someone in Scandinavia needs to buy short sleeve t-shirts in the middle of minus 40 degrees. Um, you would probably as a, as a kind of, you know, still naive teenager go, well, that's stupid. Like that makes absolutely no sense. Like, and most people in business kind of we've assumed and just kind of, you know, we, this is the way we've always done things, right? So we have to keep going. How do we stop it? Is it a case of raise prices so margin can be maintained on lower quantities? Like is it is the sustainability push going to stop us here eventually and start making, you know, forcing us to make better decisions at reduce waste? What do you think is the, the actual answer? I think that um, today's news on excess inventory is reaching the consumer. And I think that the consumer is going to hold brands and retailers accountable to how much product they're assorting, how much product is being wasted. And it's going to be a KPI 
to drive better product assortment decisions for brands and retailers. So in some instances, and I said this earlier today, that you know what, excess inventory is a good thing because it is going to drive a brand and retailer to think of excess as an opportunity to get rid of the product that doesn't work and to find out what the right quantity is so that they can push the right product at the right time in the right channel in front of their customer. I think that is a that is a beautiful sentiment that is, uh, I'm worried, maybe a little optimistic and expecting a lot of retailers that do generally, like we are so reactive, right? We am, and part of the industry we are in requires us to be. But that idea of kind of like not just going, here's a problem, excess inventory, I must solve it and solve it for the future, that next step we often miss. Um, and I think, um, you know, I would love to think that, that this this is such a big whack in the back of the head that we will all kind of pay attention and take that extra step. But I don't know, I've, I'm already nervous that we aren't based on the way people are, you know, brands are responding to it. But I, I also acknowledge that you need to be representative of your your shareholders in market and, you know, be more optimistic. So it's not necessarily reflective yeah. of what's going on behind it. You work with clients like and this. What I do. Are, are I people do. reacting? I would say yes, um, they are reacting. And market leaders that, you know, we speak to all the time are absolutely concerned that, markdown activity and heavy promotional activity could devalue the brand, especially if they are marking down product that can be sold in later seasons. And this is, you know, we will go through this um, eventually when we get to the assortment planning part of the um, the principles of subtra- subtract subtraction. <laughs> uh, planning the assortments um, and making sure that every product has a purpose is a future way of thinking. And what you brought up earlier is how, how are we going to work with our vendors and, you know, talk about these minimum order quantities that are being forced upon um, uh, brands and retailers. And it's really about shifting the way we look at our vendor partners as partners, right? Uh, when we start thinking about um, our vendors as partners as um, part of our op model, what that will do is it'll drive a, a shift in a mindset where we are all in this together. We're all winning together because once excess inventory hits, vendors are going to be told that they are that brands are going to cancel orders, that they're going to have to hold product, um, that there will be a lot of uncertainty if vendors will be paid at all because product is not going to be shipped. So if we change the mentality where we think about um, our vendors as partners and um, truly partnering with them on solutions to drive some of these um, challenges around excess inventory and overproducing and overbuying, then we'll start to think of a strategy that is a win for everyone, the consumer included. Uh, oh, I mean, I you are preaching to the converted here. Like the the concept of more community in retail from you know, across the supply chain and the end user is 
so overdue and frustratingly we keep kind of creeping slowly towards it but no one's taking the leap I, I really can't wait for someone to kind of to go on it I could rant on that for hours but I'm not going to because we've still got five more principles to get through um all right the next one skews are way too high you need to cut it tell me more yes so um the fact is what we're seeing today is that we are over assorting product there are too many SKUs. The assortment doesn't have a point of view in, in many cases. I mean, you know, Gap Inc. is a great example of that, right? Um, by questioning why products is, exist in an assortment in the first place and removing products that don't fit within a product mix that are not going to speak to the consumer should be removed. And even if... Um, you know, they're proven in the past, it doesn't mean that the consumer is going to react to it in the next season. Uh, what I would suggest is that brands and retailers um, complete a skew rationalization exercise every season. In my past, what I've seen is that this is something that doesn't happen every other season, let alone every other year. So what we need to do is truly determine the purpose of each skew by performing a skew rationalization exercise at the end of every single season so that it will drive assortment planning from concept to market on the, the following season. Seems logical. What stops us now, though? Like, why aren't we doing that? What's, is, it, is it time pressure? I would say time, yes. Time is a big one. Um, this is not a, a strategy that's built into um, a, a seasonal concept to market calendar at all. I have never seen it, in fact. Um, it's an exercise that happens as an afterthought. But once you start thinking about every SKU having a purpose, every product having a purpose, then you'll start to think about the consumer in the middle and how that product will delight um, that consumer and how that product will speak to that consumer which will, of course, drive full price sales, profitability, and increase gross margin, which is what everyone wants to hear. So if we start flipping the script and saying, okay, you know what, we need to think about every single SKU. If there's a bottom-up performer, that needs to be out. Why are we even assorting it? I am. Um, it's. It seems really logical. This feels like one of those things where one of my favorite activities to do when I was leading the retail team at at, at Brands is to kind of walk the floor. Harder to do in walk as in the the HQ floor where you're talking to your buyers, you're talking to your merchandisers, your, your space planners, um, rather than just hearing from the senior leaders. You're actually talking to the people who are in it every day. Um, hard, hard, more difficult to do nowadays, but not impossible, and not an excuse to not do it. But, you know, the idea, because this feels like something that they'd probably scream at me. Like if I walked past my buyer group right now, they're probably saying, please let me do a SKU rationalization. I, I know we've always had that, you know, Bond's white T-shirt on the front. It's an Aussie brand. There you go. Flying the flag. I know the brand. There you go. Uh, great brand. <laughs> Bond's holdproof all the way. Anyway, um, the... You know, I know we've always done it that way, but here, here's the actual evidence. Don't fall in love with what's worked in the past. Fall in love with what the evidence is telling us. Is that right? Like, would I be screamed at? Um, yes and no. Uh, the reason I say yes and no is because I'm a very big advocate of walking the shop floor. And it's something that I believe made me a successful merchant because 
I not only talked to the customers, I helped style them. I was in the fitting room, um, helping them put together uh, right stories with their outfits. And I had a great relationship with my visual merchandising team, as well as my brand ambassadors and store managers. And this is where uh, consumer insights, the most basic consumer insights of walking the shop floor will help drive product decisions. And that's why I knew, not only because of the weather, but that short sleeves are not going to sell in Scandinavia in the wintertime. Um, and I can't stress the importance of getting close to the customer by walking the shop floor. Um, going to, um, if, if your brand is in a department store, seeing who's shopping your co- uh, competition. Uh, looking at what the adjacencies are doing. Are they always on sale? Is that going to drive your customer to only look for markdown product from your shop and shop? So there, there's a lot of insights that you can't get unless you walk the shop floor. I mean, absolutely agree. And you know what? It, what I find incredibly embarrassing about our about our sector sometimes is the amount of times that we put people who are walking the shop floor and talking to their frontline teams as like these are the ones who are going above and beyond their job and like. I call that, I call rubbish. That is absolutely the core of the job. You know, can you imagine great succeeding generals not walking the trenches and understanding what's actually happening on the front lines? Like it's it's just not plausible that you're going to succeed. And it's the same in retail, yet we've, we've managed to, over time, kind of submit ourselves to this thing where we don't have to walk the floor. Anyway, we're getting, I'm, Andrew's ranting again. We should stop. Um, <laughs> the third one. I might edit this slightly. Family podcast okay. and all, Lisa. Uh, of course. Get, of get course. cluster unstuffed. Sure. That was good to say. Now, I, I mean, a lot of folks will um, resonate towards this because we're very used to buying in-store clusters where we have A, B, C, and D stores. Um, flagships will get the full assortment um, plus additional drops and smaller stores will get the tightest of assortments and no drops in season, right? Um, the, I challenge that because uh, consumers are not shopping in the same way anymore. They evolved. So our clusters should evolve. In fact, we should be allocating to where demand and sales are happening and not in traditional clusters because what you're going to uh, come across is that you're going to have to move product in season, which is taking product off the shop floor during valuable full price selling time. So the clustering should be based on where the customer actually shops and pre-allocations should be managed in that same manner where we're using predictive analytics, things like consumer insights um, and data to understand where are the consumers hanging out Where have the communities shifted? And as you know, during the pandemic, a lot of folks moved into the suburbs. So if we as a brand are not providing that urban consumer who has now shifted with a similar product assortment that they were used to seeing, they will shop less. It, again, seems just so insanely obvious, but also don't just look at store data. I think that that's we often do just kind of silo our thinking into, all right, if, sure, if store A is over here and shoppers are buying, you know, SKUs XYZ historically in that store, then that's my history. Whereas we also have an incredible amount of online data from that same area that might tell us a different story um, and we ignore it. 
and, and they're, they're forcing, they're being forced to buy online because we don't stock it in store because our stores only ever sold the same thing we've only ever stocked. Exactly. Um, but yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm all for the unclustering element. I think that clustering is just, you know, humans, are des- our brains are designed for efficiency and we cluster as a result. We cluster in life with prejudices and biases. Um, we cluster in work with by making hierarchies and say, you look after this bit and you look after this bit because it feels efficient to us. But often it's actually counterintuitive. I love that. You're very smart. I'm so glad that you're here. <laughs> All right. Acceptable inequality. I'm really nervous about the discussion on this one. It sounds nerve-wracking up front, but let's go into it, hey? Yes, Acceptable absolutely. inequality. <laughs> I actually presented this um, during my uh, talk at PI Apparel in New York um, last month. And uh, we called it AI, but it's not the AI you think. It is acceptable inequality where not all products are created equal. That was that was cheap, but I loved it. <laughs> I thought you might. Um, so what we know is that products are not equal. Their materials, their testing needs, the seasonality, supply chains, all of that is unequal. So if these products are unequal, the way that they're created must also be unequal. So what we see today are start start and stop dates within a concept-to-market calendar. They are generally the same. Uh, The extent of physical sampling required, we're generally sampling and prototyping the same way. And who is involved in each milestone moment or key moment in the calendar during product creation? They're all the same people. So if we approach product creation in a more flexible way, using methods based on the complexity of each product, we would save considerable time, effort, um, and during the product creation process, and of course, give time back to the team so that they can redirect that time and effort into higher value tasks and more complex product. Amazing. It certainly didn't go down the pathway I expected it to when I read the headline. So that's good news. Um, the new AI, that's how I'm coining it. The new AI, acceptable inequality. It, yeah, please do quickly because, you know, Deborah and I, when we come up with things on this podcast, we have teams of lawyers who run away and trademark <laughs> things immediately. Um, oh, not really, man. just to be clear. Uh, <laughs> all right. Value added product creation. Now, this follows naturally um, after acceptable inequality. And the way that we define it is if you don't add value to a product during its creation product process, do not touch it. What I mean by that is when we think about the way that product creation, uh, concept to market or go to market calendars were constructed, they were constructed as a work back. So think of this is the time when I need my sales sample. And then you work back from that time and that will give you your start date of when you will begin the season at concept. A lot of the goals um, that were set and are set during this concept to market calendar are called milestone moments or key alignment moments where teams would meet for reviews and approvals. The fact is today, all teams, all cross-functional teams are going to those key alignment moments when they don't need to be involved in every step of that product. So if we think of the example of a seasonless core t-shirt that's brought back every season, um, it doesn't need input from fit. It doesn't need to be tested. It doesn't really need sourcing or costing or sampling in the room. 
those teams being in a room when this product is being reviewed with hashtags, um, they don't add value at that key step. So cut their involvement. If we're thinking about an innovative technical jacket, think of the Nike Forward hoodie, for example, uh, where fit, testing, sourcing, sampling are all required. Those teams add value, tremendous value, in fact, at those key steps. So you need to make sure they're involved. And that's where we say trimming the fat, (laughs) where you're cutting the redundancies in who is involved in each product creation milestone moment, it really gives teams accountability of having purpose in that room at that time. Um, I think I think this is the most interesting one to me too, because like we are really we we're ego creatures as humans. Like we, we we genuinely need to feel like we play an important role. And who hasn't been in a team where people are like, oh you should have me in that meeting and you want it in your head you're going, why? But okay, um, and you end up with these mass kind of decisions by committee, which don't need to be there because they just reduce productivity and they're a complete waste of time. And but then we pull people out of the con- their own context and we sit there and go, "Would you like your job to be easier with less time in meetings?" People always say, "Guess what? Yes." But then we go into our own context and we always put ourselves into meetings. It's really, really, it's such an interesting juxtaposition of human behavior in the corporate world. And I, I like, I find it absolutely fascinating, but I think this is, I think my favorite part about this in terms of it's just speed. So like if, you know, what I do for a living when I, I talk to retail brands is like, we want to do everything faster. And, you know, we help them do that by doing exactly this kind of thing. We sit there and go, where are you wasting effort by kind of doing things because it kind of felt like a community, the right thing to do, or because why not apply one rule to everything as opposed to applying the right kind of decision-making and the right thing to every individual point. And it's um, it's just, it is incredible the amount of waste that exists in a system, especially in retail, when you just have everybody in a room and designed by committee and then all of a sudden the plain white Bonds t-shirt we spoke about earlier suddenly needs to be re-approved every year by 25 people. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that you hit the nail on, their head, on the head there and having too many cooks in the kitchen is is exactly that. It's too many folks um, stepping up for approvals or sample reviews when they just don't need to be there, especially if product doesn't even need to be sampled in the first place. And that's a whole other can of worms, which um, you know I've definitely talked about before under flexible product creation and how all not not all products need to be uh, physically sampled, materials included. I mean, there's a whole other podcast on that topic, I reckon. There is. Because again, like, you know, we talk about on this podcast a lot around sustainability. Sustainability is often conflated to the environment. Um, in this instance, it is environmental. The amount of stuff that goes, like if we do put every product through regular constant testing, even though sometimes it doesn't need it, we are wasting product. We're wasting time. We're wasting water. We're wasting chemicals. We're wasting everything along the whole pathway. Um, and it doesn't need to happen. And there's a really easy way to pull waste, to pull um, you know, environmental impact, but more importantly, to pull cost out of your business and the way you do it. All right, the last one, which definitely made me giggle, especially because you included a lovely little gif from a fabulous TV show uh, with a similar name, um, Curb Your 
parentheses, design enthusiasm. Tell me more. Well, this is something I'm sure you will find familiar as well as uh, the audience, where design-led brands allow design teams to work without constraints, so not to limit their creativity. So let design, you know, go ahead and design everything under the sun, and then we'll figure it out later. Uh, this directly impacts efficiency of product creation and time to market. For example, design has chosen a specific material that they saw at a trade show or, you know, with a competitor or in market um, for a product. What this does is it, is it kickstarts a chase where material development will work with sourcing, costing, and factory partners in this request. This could end up end up as a drawn out process if no solution is produced and design would may they may ask for further developments uh pushing out deadlines and what this does is it produces a low adoption rate of materials what we need to do is limit the number of new developments that design can request each season and adopt the mindset of designing into already available and approved materials in a pre-approved library, whether it's digital or physical. What that will do is it will drive tracking of material adoption rates and instill accountabilities for unnecessary development, which, as you and I know, happens a lot. And when you have somebody like Ops, a neutral party, watching over the product creation calendar, they can ensure deadline adherence and making sure those goalposts are not moving. And like this, this one, um, uh, I enjoyed reflecting on this one. This one actually did genuinely make me giggle about all of the times that people who have risen to a senior position in a retail business, having never been in merchant and like in been a buyer or been in charge of product or design that, that would sit there and go, you know, like there are people who would be the CEO of a Macy's who have no clue what all of the words you just strung together meant. <laughs> and. You know, which is bewildering to me for lots of reasons. But it's like, how do we, how do you break that one down? Do you reckon to like, if you were, let's say, let's say you and I uh, have just been hired by, I'll, I'll make up a retailer, the um, uh, Poodles Clothing Company, um, and you know we make clothing for poodles. It's a good cause, social enterprise. Um, all those poodles out there that are cold, you know, we're helping warm them up over the winter. Um, you know, and I know nothing about anything that you just mentioned. I said, please just dumb it down for me. Tell me that in my language. In your language, what I would say is when when we're going to start with a collection, design will go to market or they will um, from, I don't know, however they create product, they're, they're going to want to create product based on their vision. What they will then do is they will go to materials, the materials teams. Materials teams would be textile, trim, color, print, pattern, and they will request a development of that material. Materials teams will work with factory partners, mills, um, color developers on trying to match what the designer is looking for. If we flip the script and we already have um, materials teams working ahead of time on R&D, on long lead time, um, working with digital tools uh, for um, color achievability, uh, print and pattern, etc. Designers can come in and with a materials mindset, design into those materials 
versus going into market, going and finding, you know, these most, the most obscure material and asking these poor materials teams who are worked to death saying, please go make this, find this for me. And you only have this amount of time to do it because the concept to market the calendar is the calendar. We need to have sales samples by this time. And of course, as we work back, you only have a few weeks to go find this material. They are running around like chickens with their head cut off. And that is not great for mental health of teams, but it's not very efficient. Because if you're doing this exactly, and if you're doing this as a brand every single season, your materials teams will quit. (laughs) Because what happens to all those materials that they um, developed that were part of the requests of new developments those just get put aside. And then thinking about the waste of development, the waste of back and forth with overseas partners, um, with, you know, email trails and communication um, that's not clear. I mean, we've all been there. We know it happens. It's not in real time, right? These things take a lot of time. And then what if the material that they've developed that um, they put on a garment or if or you know a piece of footwear and it doesn't work they're back to the drawing board which of course hinders speed to market yeah for sure it's i um it just it's just smart right it's it won't work for every obviously there are designer led designer brands that you know will will still be that but for most brands this is a really smart system i do imagine though you'll get hate mail from designers for this one i might yes i might um but what i will tell them is that some of the best brands in the world that are um i'm sure over 40 billion dollars now the the big brand with the big campus in portland (laughs) uh they work this way um not for every single brand but they do work this way for the majority of their brands uh where they are designing into a digital or physical library and let's be honest, we do not need to recreate a zipper every single season. <laughs> I um yeah, I still I think I think you I think you'll still get hate mail, but that's okay. I think I think every now and again we've got to disrupt the system. I'd rather be divisive than indecisive as uh uh Lynn Manuel would have said in Hamilton. Um all right, let's let's I, th- so those are your six principles. I think they're incredibly smart. Um, and I really appreciate you going into the detail of it. The one thing I really love what you guys do at the Retail Strategy Group is this idea of actually breaking it down into, rather than it just be this kind of big, you know, motherhood statement, it's actually broken down into actionable things. I think that's fantastic. Let's talk general retail. You and I are constantly bumping into each other in shows um, and it's a delight. It's a delight every time. Um, but, you know, what do you, like, if we look, we're, you know, it's scary to say this, but we're kind of closing into the end of 2022 you know conferences are certainly slowing down as we prepare for peak holiday shopping um and then we you know see you at nrf in january i suppose but what has your reflections been what has been the big parts of this year you think that um has been the most interesting to you the most interesting for me has been um the the focus of uh, diversifying merchandise assortments that truly speak to the consumer. Um, I just made a comment on uh, Victoria's Secret, and I think that you know I'm really happy to see that they are um, really pushing the narrative on inclusivity um, and 
really trying to change their past. I love that. The second thing I will say is that I really love the fact that digitally native brands are shifting into physical retail. The reason I love that is because as I am so focused on what does the consumer want, the consumer does not see channel. And so I want to see those brands in the, you know, this unified commerce environment where uh, we're able to engage with a brand um, at, at Nordstrom as well as their, you know, online um, store as well as their own retail store. So, uh, you know, that, that's what I really love to see. I also love to see partnerships between um, luxury and mainstream. I think that's um, very accessible, which I, I love. I think that I think there's some really smart ones The you know, the, um, the collaboration stuff this, this year has been really exciting to watch for me. Like as a, you know, when you, when you take that step out of retail practitioner into, you know, the consulting kind of analyst space, it is so much easier to get angry with us as a center for not working together yeah. more. Like we, we, we do work together, but not really. Uh, we don't work together in, in really, really smart hands-on in back rooms, f- factories, in supply chain, in those kinds of ways. And I think we should be doing that more often. And I think the collaboration stuff has been super fascinating. Um, but I'm with you. I think the, you know, the, this kind of like pivot of, uh, of the way we've been thinking through, um, you know, what, what, like the existential channels thing, you know, it's like the, I feel like 2022, it's, it's by far, it's 10, if not more years late, but we can finally stop saying crap like omnichannel or fidgetal or any of that <laughs> rubbish. Like we can actually oh just go. Oh my God, that's the worst word ever. Oh, it's terrible, right? <laughs> it's just, we're just retail, right? It's, it does feel like this year is the first year where we've kind of all just ignored, started ignoring those words. And I think if you're still having multi-channel or omni-channel or whatever in your, in your strategy packs, it's like you need to catch up. Like I think you're falling behind. I think that's definitely been one of mine. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm insanely stupidly passionate about sustainability in all its forms. And, you know, you mentioned about diversity and, and inclusivity across brands and particularly in clothing and fashion. And I had a, I think there's still a ways to go there. I think there's, there's some good barriers being broken down, but, you know, I was having a chat with a, um, you know, a, a smaller designer brand, um, at some point this year who was talking about how, just how insanely cost prohibitive it is to be inclusive across sizing. And, you know, that is something that is not okay and we have to fix that. And, you know, that that is only going to come from us all working together to reduce cost of fabric, to be reduce the cost of production, to reduce cost of fitting and 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 factory work and milling work and all that kind of fun stuff. But um I'm excited that we're at least having the conversation. Agreed. And you know, on top of the list that you just uh said I would add, you know, things like size packs and size scales to that because that's what we buy into. You know, if if you were ever a merchant or planner, you'll know that one two two one is something that you have to buy into because that's how the factory packs the product, um, and that's where we need to start rethinking and reimagining the assortment plan and how we partner with our factories. Yeah. And it's true. Yeah. That's so true too, because it is, it's every minuscule part of the supply chain. It's not just me and my designs. I could design something for every size known to humankind, 
but then it, you know it's it, if if ten percent gets added on at every point, it becomes untenable untenable for us to be able to kind of you know sell it, and yeah. um, we're yeah. selling things at a loss. Fantastic. You are just an incredibly energizing, fun human being to hang out with. And I always learn every time I talk to you, how do people find you? Tell me a bit more about where people should look for you. Yeah. So you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm extremely active. Um, Or on our website, which is retailstrategygroup.com. And the newsletter can be found at themerchantlife.com. I'm also on Twitter and across social. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Lisa. And if they really want to get a hold of me, they can call you and, you know, they can. That's true. Yeah, that's very true. Um, (laughs) I, uh, what a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for your time. I can't recommend your newsletter enough because it is just so well written. You guys do a great job. Um, And, you know, hearing across, uh, you know, different facets of what merchant life is, I think is fascinating. And you really do put the put the factory clothes on and get into the detail. I think it's fantastic. So thank you so much for coming along. What a great chat. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Andrew. Always a pleasure. All right. Wow. I need to take a breath after that incredible conversation uh, with Lisa. She is just so smart, right? She makes me feel like I don't know enough about retail and I feel I'm one of the biggest retail nerds going around. Thank you for joining us for that incredible conversation. We talked about uh, you know why skews are way too high and we need to cut it. We need to talk about how we can get rid of clusters. We need to talk about the new AI or acceptable inequality um, and uh, value-added product creation, of course, and curbing our design enthusiasm. Um, thanks to those incredible insights from Lisa and the team at Retail Strategy Group. I highly recommend you uh, do subscribe to her newsletter. It's free, themerchantlife.com. Uh, Thanks to our fabulous producing team led by Drew Burrows for producing this episode. I've been Andrew Smith. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Retailistic. Uh, uh, Before you join us for next week's episode, please, in the meantime, like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app that helps other people uh, find us, which we'd really appreciate. Thanks very much for doing it. Thanks very much, guys, for another episode of Retailistic. I'm Andrew Smith. See you next week.